Well, again, good morning. And, and again, my name is Evan. I'm one of the ministers here, and I get to spend most of my time hanging with our college students. And so preaching is something I only, I only do occasionally, and it's kind of special to me because of that, because I really, I just get to share about something God's been teaching me lately. And what's, what's been on my heart lately comes from what we've done this past semester with our college students. We, we spent last semester walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and, and since then, I've found myself pretty consistently drawn to the Lord's Prayer. And so I'm excited to spend some time this morning walking together through the Lord's Prayer. And, and I'd say what I've prepared for us this morning is a little bit less of a sermon than usual. And you could say that it's partially more like some guided prayer time. <clears throat> and so I've, I've prepared some thoughts to share for each section of this prayer that Jesus gives us. But I don't really see what I'll be doing as teaching necessarily. What, what I hope is that the thoughts I've prepared are helpful to you this morning and maybe even insightful or informative. But more than anything else, I hope they'll be encouraging to you in your prayer life and in our collective prayer life. And so we'll be, we'll be praying through this prayer out loud together this morning, one bit at a time. So I, I thank you for joining me in that. <clears throat> I'm going to pull up this first section. You don't have to say it yet. I'll tell you when. But Jesus starts off in in the way that he teaches us to pray by giving us these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So I want to think about that a little bit together. Yahweh was a faithful father to his people long before Jesus came onto the scene. But it's in Christ that we really come to know the one true God as our Father, you know, I, I, I believe it's true that in the Sermon on the Mount alone, if I'm right, God is referred to as Father by Jesus more times than in the entirety of the Old Testament. He really introduced this way of thinking of God. And it's because of Jesus that we can know God in this way. Because to Jesus, God is the Father. And Jesus invites us into the family. And so I want to ask, what comes to mind When we think about God as our Father, what's comforting or compelling about having a relationship with God as our Father? Maybe it's to know the the warmth and security of His strong embrace. Maybe it's to trust in His protection and His provision, to know that He takes care of us. Maybe it's to know deeply in our souls that we are created in His image, that we bear His likeness, that His identity is will always undergird our identity. God's a great father. He, he lives up to the title of father in ways that our human fathers haven't, in ways that they can't, because no matter how earnestly we try, no matter how often we fail, none of us can carry that title of father as well as God does. So maybe there are some ways that we need for God to redeem the father-child relationship. We can count on God to always be with us. We can count on God to lead us with love, with patience, with compassion. We can count on him to teach us. And then there's the second line here. Hallowed be your name. I want to think about what that means. The the Cambridge Dictionary defines the word hallowed as very respected and praised because of great importance or great age. And in a religious context, it's simply defined as holy, a word we know to mean set apart. 
And so we probably use this word hallowed most often when we speak of a place as being or having hallowed ground, right? It means it's a place of great significance. It's the home of something or someone significant, or it's a site where something of great significance has occurred. It's the home arena of an, of an athletics program that's steeped in tradition. It's a, it's a battlefield or a marching ground where people laid their lives on the line for what they believed was right. It's a cemetery where heroes are laid to rest. It's a place with a certain gravity to it, a place that we don't take lightly. And so applied to our Father, we have to recognize that our Father's name is hallowed. His name is steeped in rich tradition and powerful history. His name is known for the most awesome and miraculous events in human history, ones known to the world and ones we've experienced in our own lives. His name carries a certain gravity to it. It demands a certain reverence. And so this line, like most in the Lord's Prayer, it's part praise and part petition. We praise God in acknowledgement of his hallowed name, and we also ask that it would be treated as hallowed. And so as children of this Holy Father, the best way we can participate in treating his name as holy is by carrying his name well. And so this ought to play a role in the way that we even understand the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. Think about it. We probably associate that command mostly with the way we say God's name, the way we use or refrain from using certain phrases. But the primary way that we take God's name is by taking it on. We call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves children of God. And so if actions speak louder than words, how could we honor our Father's name better and by emulating his ways. So as we, as we pray these words together here in just a second, let's, let's ask ourselves this. What does it mean to have Almighty God as our Father? What does that mean to us? How is he the best Father? What about his character or track record reminds us how holy his name is? And how might we participate today in treating his name as hallowed? I invite you to think about any of those things. Let's say these words together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's move on. Next, we're given these lines. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does this mean? What, is, what does this look like? What does it look like to want this, to pray for it daily? So in the, in the New Living Translation, which is more of a, a thought-for-thought interpretation than a word-for-word one. It actually says, may your kingdom come soon. And as we were doing a deeper study of this text this past fall with some of our students, a few of them expressed a bit of distaste for the NLT's insertion of this word, soon. They felt it was a bit presumptuous. They felt it was adding to Jesus' words. And so... Yeah. I'm not trying to start a debate on the value or merit of different interpretive philosophies or practices, but I will say that I can appreciate the thought of Jesus calling for our Father's kingdom to come soon and teaching us to pray it that way as well. Because if this is how Jesus teaches us to pray, if this is what Jesus teaches us to pray, how many times can we pray it without cultivating some deep longing, some deep sense of immediacy? And so I want to invite you this morning to reflect on God's kingdom and what it means to you. 
It's been helpful for me to put some words to it. I've come to think of God's kingdom this way, as a state of existence characterized by the ways of the Lord. A state of existence characterized by the ways of the Lord. We could know a great deal about God's kingdom just by considering the fruit of his spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Some of you might be doing some fruit in your head right now. You know, Dallas Willard wants to find the kingdom simply as where what God wants done is done. Romans 8 talks about how all of creation longs to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Deep in our souls, we long for creation to be redeemed in God's peace, in his kindness, in his justice, in his healing. And God longs for it too, and he's going to do it. It's his will that this should and will happen. So let's also briefly reflect, reflect on God's will. God's will seems to operate on many levels, but I'm, I'm just going to touch on one this morning, and it's the individual level. You know, in our, in our work with college students, we always see that God's will for their lives, his plan for their lives, it's a subject of great importance. It's something that students are really concerned with, and it often functions as a subject of great anxiety. And here's why. We get our identity and our purpose so caught up in our careers and our day jobs that we often feel like having the wrong day job is equivalent to going against God's will. And please, please let me push back on that thought for just a minute. Now I can say maybe it's possible and even likely that God has prepared or is preparing any one of us for a specific vocation. Who am I to say that's not true? But regardless, that is not God's primary will for our lives. God's primary will for all of us is to know him, to love him, and to share his love. That's it. And some of our favorite and best-known verses speak to this very plainly. Micah 6.8, which we're familiar with. There it is. says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus says later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twelve. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And so if we submit ourselves to God's will at this level, loving him, loving people, and, and knowing him, <clears throat> we can trust him to lead us into whatever he may will beyond that. So as we look at these words together to pray, let me give you some more questions to reflect on. What comes to mind most clearly when we think about God's kingdom? What does that mean? What about God's kingdom do we most deeply long for? And what's a way in which we're certain we can obediently participate in God's will today? I say these words together. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next, Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. And you know, one thing that we bring into every single day 
is our need. <laughs> Every morning before my feet hit the floor, you can be certain that I've already thought about the work that I need to do today, the additional amount of rest that I feel that I need, the breakfast that I need, the amount of physical activity my body needs, my need to just get going, right? How many of us start most days off feeling like we're already behind? We all have felt needs, unfelt needs, and false needs, which are better known as wants. And we can get these out of order so easily. But as is always the case in Christ, there's good news, and it's this. We have a Father who knows all our needs and who's faithful to meet those needs. Jesus leads into the Lord's Prayer by teaching that our Father knows what we need before we ask, as we see here. Later on in the same chapter, Jesus speaks to our tendency to worry about some of our most basic physical needs, food, drink, clothing. And he assures us that God recognizes these as real needs. He says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. And in the following verse, which is one we know well, Jesus puts these real physical needs into proper perspective by adding, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, food, drink, clothing, will be given to you as well. See, we all have needs that run deeper than our basic physical needs. We need the wholeness that can only be found in God's kingdom and in his righteousness. And we can count on God our Father to meet those needs in abundance as well. Shortly afterwards, in Matthew 7, Jesus goes on to tell us that God is even generous enough to often, often, gift us with things that we may not even need at all. He says, which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Our Father is just so generous, and he's such a good provider. And one of our greatest challenges is to trust in God's provision and give up the illusion of our ability to provide for ourselves. So we're called to pray for daily bread, that we might never forget how able and faithful our Father is to meet all our needs. So as we prepare to say these words, to pray these words together, I invite you to consider these questions. What needs do we bring into this day, and how can we trust the Lord to meet them? What ideas of self-sufficiency might we need to lay down today? And what can we gratefully acknowledge that the Lord has already provided for us today? Let's say these words. Give us today our daily bread. Next he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Praise God in our Lord Jesus Christ for having already settled the matter of the first line. Forgive us our debts. Because in his death, Jesus has overcome the consequence of sin in our lives. And in his resurrection, Jesus has overcome the power of sin in our lives. He has conquered death and provided the way for us to spend eternity with him. And it's because of this 
When we ask the Lord to forgive our debts, it should be less petition and more praise. It should be less please and more thank you. If it's not, then we might not really understand what Jesus has given us. We might not fully realize and appreciate what's done, finished, and over with once and for all. Let's read from Hebrews 10. It says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. This is speaking of life under the Old Covenant. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. You know, unpacking this passage in all its glory is just another sermon for another day. But let's recognize, believe, and embrace the massively game-changing truths presented here. Think about it. The old system for atonement was just as never-ending as sin itself. It had to be in order to keep up with sin. It was so constant that the priest would have to stay on his feet day after day. Sin never slowed down, so the priest could never sit down. And this system had no power to take away sin. It simply counteracted it. But Jesus gave a new offering himself, an offering so perfect that it has come to function as a single sacrifice for all sins, good for all time. It not only counteracts our sins, but it takes them away. No sacrifice has been needed since nor will one ever be needed again. So Jesus, the new and better high priest, has taken his seat. He gets to sit down, exalted at the right hand of God. And not only that, but he is also, this line's crazy to me, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And that is such a wonderful and mysterious statement. Jesus has made us perfect forever. And as confused as we may be by this idea, as reluctant as we may be to accept it, let's start by taking God's word at its word here, and let's believe this. Let's recognize that this clearly is not speaking to an outward actions-based perfection, at least not our actions. This perfection isn't determined by our actions. It's determined by Jesus' actions. And actually, the Greek word used here that we translate as perfect it, it speaks more to an inward wholeness, to having been made complete. It comes from the word telos, which means end. He's, he's brought us to our end. He's made us complete. He's made us full. He's made us whole. And so Jesus has made us whole so that we can be made holy. You see, our, t- our sin, it tears us apart. But Jesus takes it away and puts us back together. He makes us whole again so that we can be set apart with him. Sin tears us apart, but Jesus sets us apart. He gives us new life. And new life, better life, is what Jesus came to give us. And in order for life to be new and better, it has to be different. Which brings us to the second half of this section. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, one God-given function of prayer is repentance, to always be turning ourselves toward the Lord 
and away from whatever would inhibit us from doing so. You know, if we ever need evidence or a reminder of the function of repentance and prayer, we need look no further than here. As a forgiven people, we must be a forgiving people. Because we've been set free. Because Jesus has delivered us from the shame and torment and hopelessness of our misdeeds. And no freed person ought to hold anyone else in that same captivity. Jesus calls us to commit ourselves every day to extending the same life-changing forgiveness that he has extended us. What is it that keeps us from forgiving those who sin against us? Hate, contempt, pride, bitterness, insecurity, jealousy, self-righteousness. These are all toxins to our souls. Jesus offers us living water, and sometimes we choose poison instead. It's some real old life stuff to let resentment set up shop in our hearts. I I can't remember the source, but I, I once read that the person who has the most power over you is the person you haven't forgiven. And I find that to be true. So let us remember that Jesus has made us whole so that we can be made holy. Sin tears us apart, but Jesus sets us apart. Let's say yes to new life, and let's carry our Father's holy name well by being a radically forgiving people. Whatever grudges we've brought with us into 2023, let's give them to the Lord. As far as it depends on us, let's seek to live peaceably with all. And that's an important piece to include here. That's Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We recognize that peace is not a one-way street. Peace depends on all parties involved to desire it and pursue it. And so we, we may have relationships that end up requiring a parting of ways or the establishing of some boundaries. We may need that. But we don't have to carry the weight that forms in the absence of forgiveness. Jesus can take that from us. He's already taken it for us. So if hearing this brings any certain people to mind for any of us, please be encouraged in Christ to choose forgiveness and to pursue reconciliation to the extent that you can. Let's commit ourselves so fully to practicing forgiveness in Christ that we can joyfully pray these words. Let's say them together. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lastly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, we can say with certainty that God does not tempt. James does say it with certainty. In James 1, verses 13 and 14, it reads, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. On the other hand, shortly before we find Jesus delivering the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we see the Spirit leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4. One thing we see time and time again throughout Scripture is the wilderness functioning as a place of testing. And temptation 
is inevitably a part of that testing. God doesn't tempt, but he certainly does test. But our enemy, the tempter, constantly takes our testing as an opportunity to steal, kill, and destroy. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our, trouble is not, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Our enemy is real, and he's formidable. If we try to overcome overcome him on our own, we lose. But our Father has already won. So we look to him and depend on him for victory. Before we say these words together, I invite you to consider these. In what areas are we finding ourselves under attack from the enemy? What means of deliverance has our Father provided from the temptations we face? And what growth might we find in our current season of testing? Let's pray these words. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I have a few closing thoughts here. Now, I have to admit, I'm, I'm no art buff. So if by putting a, fan, a Van Gogh painting on the screen, if my doing that excites you to come and talk to me about it, I'm happy to listen. But I probably don't have much more knowledge on the subject. Okay? In Sky Jatani's book, The Great Commodity, he shares some of the story behind this painting. And two things he shares in particular. Given the title of the painting, which... Uh, Its English title is At Eternity's Gate. And given that Van Gogh is known to have used the color blue to symbolize the infinite, we can infer that this man is being portrayed as being blanketed in divine glory during a moment of prayer, which is a beautiful thing. And we also don't actually have to infer this because we have record of something that Van Gogh wrote in a letter to his brother. About this painting, he says, This is far from theology, simply the fact that the poorest little woodcutter or peasant on the hearth or miner can have moments of emotion and inspiration which give him a feeling of an eternal home to which he is near. God is that home. We read earlier how Jesus says we need not babble in prayer, thinking God will hear us because of our many words. Because our Father knows what we need before we ask. This begs the question, if God, our Father, knows what we need before we ask, why do we even need to pray? But Jesus has already told us the answer to that in the verses immediately before. He says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Spending time with our unseen Father, is the reward. The prayer that Jesus gives us is a gift because it helps us to discover the reward of spending time regularly and simply with our Heavenly Father. 
Prayer is not about what we say. It's about who we're with. And so let's join together one more time in prayerful communion with our Father and say this entire prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's continue in worship. Stand. Let's all stand.